This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pelvic ring fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Pelvic ring fractures are high-energy fractures of the pelvic ring, which typically occur due to blunt trauma. Diagnosis is made radiographically with pelvic radiographs and further characterized with a CT scan. Treatment is typically operative fixation depending on the degree of pelvis instability, fracture displacement, and patient activity demands. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to etiology, associated orthopedic injuries with pelvic ring fractures include chest injury in up to 63% of patients, long bone fractures in 50% of patients, and spine fractures in 25% of patients. Associated non-orthopedic injuries in the setting of pelvic ring fractures include urogenital injuries, and note that there would be sexual dysfunction in up to 50% of patients, as well as head and abdominal injury in 40% of patients. In terms of pediatric pelvic ring fractures, Children with open triradiate cartilage have different fracture patterns than do children whose triradiate cartilage has closed. If the triradiate cartilage is open, the iliac wing is weaker than the elastic pelvic ligaments, resulting in bone failure before pelvic ring disruption. For this reason, fractures usually involve the pubic rami and iliac wings and rarely require surgical treatment. Now let's talk about some relevant anatomy. We'll go over osteology, ligaments, vascular supply, and neurologic structures. So starting with osteology, Know that the pelvic ring structure is made up of the sacrum and two innominate bones. Stability is dependent on the strong surrounding ligamentous structures. Displacement can only occur with disruption of the ring in two places. Neurovascular structures are intimately associated with posterior pelvic ligaments. Know that there is a high index of suspicion for injury of the internal iliac vessels or lumbosacral plexus. Moving on to ligaments, it's important to know the anterior ligaments, the pelvic floor, and the posterior sacroiliac complex, which is the posterior tension band. So the anterior ligaments include the symphyseal ligaments, which resist external rotation. The pelvic floor is made up of the sacrospinous ligaments, which resist external rotation, and the sacrotuberous ligaments, which resist shear and flexion. The posterior sacroiliac complex, or the posterior tension band, are the strongest ligaments in the body. They are more important than the anterior structures for pelvic ring stability. The anterior sacroiliac ligaments resist external rotation after failure of the pelvic floor and anterior structures. The interosseous sacroiliac ligaments resist anterior-posterior translation of the pelvis. The posterior sacroiliac ligaments resist the cephalad-caudad displacement of the pelvis. Finally, the iliolumbar ligaments resist rotation and augment the posterior SI ligaments. Moving on to the vascular supply, know that the common iliac system begins near L4 at the bifurcation of the abdominal aorta. The external iliac artery courses anteriorly along the pelvic brim and emerges as the common femoral artery, distal to the inguinal ligament. The internal iliac artery dives posteriorly near the SI joint and divides in the posterior division, giving off the superior gluteal artery and the anterior division becoming the obturator artery. The corona mortis is a connection between the obturator and the external iliac systems. It is seen at a mean distance of 6.2 centimeters from the pubic symphysis. Remember that the venous plexus in the posterior pelvis accounts for 90% of the hemorrhage associated with pelvic ring injuries. Finally, in terms of neurologic structures, the lumbosacral trunk crosses the anterior sacral ala and the SI joint. The L5 nerve root exits below the L5 transverse process and courses over the sacral ala 2 cm medial to the SI joint. Now, let's go over the classification of pelvic ring fractures, and the ones to know include the tau classification and the Young and Burgess classification. The tile classification can be divided into three types, A, B, and C. A is stable, 
B is rotationally unstable but vertically stable, and C is rotationally and vertically unstable. These three types can be further divided into subtypes. So starting with A, which again is stable, this is divided into subtypes A1, A2, and A3. A1 is a fracture not involving the ring, that is, an avulsion or iliac wing fracture. A2 is a stable or minimally displaced fracture of the ring. Finally, A3 is a transverse sacral fracture, which is a Denis zone 3 sacral fracture. Moving on to a tile type B, again these are rotationally unstable and vertically stable fractures, and this is subdivided into three subtypes, B1, B2, and B3. B1 is an open book injury, which is an external rotation injury. B2 is a lateral compression injury, which is an internal rotation injury. B2 can be further subdivided into B21 and B22. B21 has a lateral compression injury with an anterior ring rotation slash displacement through the ipsilateral rami, while B22 is a lateral compression injury with anterior ring rotation slash displacement through the contralateral rami. This is otherwise known as a bucket handle injury. Finally, B3 is a bilateral injury. Moving on to type C, remember again that this is a rotationally and vertically unstable injury, and this can be further divided into three subtypes, C1, C2, and C3. C1 is unilateral and can be further subdivided into C11, which is a unilateral iliac fracture. C1 is unilateral and can be further subdivided into C11, C12, and C13. C11 is an iliac fracture, C12 is a sacral iliac fracture dislocation, and C13 is a sacral fracture. C2 is a bilateral pelvic ring injury where one side is a type B and one side is a type C. Finally, a C3 is bilateral with both sides being type C. Moving on to the Young-Burgess classification, this can be divided into anterior-posterior compression injuries, lateral compression injuries, and vertical shear injuries. Anterior-posterior compression injuries, or APC, can be divided into three types, APC1, APC2, and APC3. APC1 corresponds to a symphysis widening of less than 2.5 centimeters. APC2 corresponds to symphysis widening of greater than 2.5 centimeters. There is anterior SI joint diastasis, the posterior SI ligaments are intact, and there's disruption of the sacrospinous and sacrotuberous ligaments. An APC3 corresponds to disruption of the anterior and posterior SI ligaments, or an SI dislocation. An APC3 is also characterized by disruption of the sacrospinous and sacrotuberous ligaments. Remember that an APC3 injury is associated with vascular injury. Moving on to lateral compression, or LC-type pelvic ring injuries, this can be divided into three subtypes, LC1, LC2, and LC3. LC1 corresponds to an oblique or transverse ramus fracture and ipsilateral anterior sacral ala compression fracture. LC2 corresponds to a rami fracture and an ipsilateral posterior ilium fracture dislocation. This is otherwise known as a crescent fracture. Finally, LC3 corresponds to an ipsilateral lateral compression and a contralateral APC injury, otherwise known as a windswept pelvis. The common mechanism for an LC3 injury is a rollover vehicle accident or pedestrian versus auto. Finally, a vertical shear injury has a posterior and superior directed force and is associated with the highest risk of hypovolemic shock at 63% and a mortality rate of up to 25%. Moving on to the physical exam of pelvic ring injuries, symptoms include pain and inability to bear weight. Physical exam should include inspection, skin evaluation, neurologic exam, urogenital exam, as well as vaginal and rectal examinations. Inspection should test stability by placing gentle rotational force on each iliac crest. However, this has low sensitivity for detecting instability, 
and make sure that you perform this only once. Be sure to look for abnormal lower extremity positioning, such as external rotation of one or both extremities or a limb length discrepancy. As far as skin evaluation, you may notice scrotal, labial, or perineal hematoma, swelling, or ecchymosis. You may also find flank hematoma, lacerations of the perineum, as well as degloving injuries, otherwise known as a Morel-Laval lesion. Moving on to neurologic exam, be sure to rule out lumbosacral plexus injuries, and remember that L5 and S1 are the most common. Be sure to do a rectal exam to evaluate the sphincter tone and perirectal sensation. Know that up to 10 to 15% of patients will sustain neurologic injury. On urogenital exam, the most common finding is gross hematuria. This is more common in males, specifically 21% in males, and 8% in females. Finally, in terms of vaginal and rectal examinations, this is mandatory to rule out occult open fracture. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, inlet, outlet, and a single leg stance AP pelvis, otherwise known as a flamingo view. An AP pelvis is part of the initial ATLS evaluation. Be sure to look for asymmetry, rotation, or displacement of each hemipelvis. There may also be evidence of an anterior ring injury, which needs further imaging. With an inlet view, the x-ray beam will be angled 40 degrees caudad, however may be as little as 25 degrees. An adequate image is when S1 overlaps the S2 body. For example, it will be perpendicular to the S1 endplate. This is ideal for visualizing, specifically anterior or posterior translation of the hemipelvis, internal or external rotation of the hemipelvis, widening of the SI joint, as well as sacral ala impaction. Moving on to an outlet view, this is when the x-ray beam is angled approximately 40 degrees cephalad, however may be as much as 60 degrees. An adequate image is when the pubic symphysis overlies the S2 body. This is ideal for visualizing vertical translation of the hemipelvis, flexion slash extension of the hemipelvis, and disruption of the sacral foramina and location of sacral fractures. Finally, a single leg stance AP pelvis, otherwise known as a flamingo view, is when the patient alternates with the right and left foot up while an AP pelvis is obtained. This is used in evaluation of suspected chronic pelvic ring instability. With a single leg stance AP pelvis, the examiner measures vertical translation of the pubic bones, and this serves as a means of assessing pathologic motion at the SI joint. As far as findings, radiographic signs of instability include greater than 5 mm displacement of the posterior sacroiliac complex, the presence of a posterior sacral fracture gap, and avulsion fractures specifically of the ischial spine, ischial tuberosity, sacrum, and transverse process of the fifth lumbar vertebrae. Finally, moving on to CT, this is a routine part of the pelvic ring injury evaluation. This has better characterization of posterior ring injuries, it helps define comminution and fragment rotation, it visualizes the position of fracture lines relative to the sacral foramina, and know that radiographic signs of sacral dysmorphism include an anterior upsloping upper sacral ala, irregular non-circular sacral nerve root tunnels, residual S1 disc, as well as a tongue and groove SI joint. Moving on to studies to obtain in the setting of a pelvic ring fracture, serum labs should include a hemoglobin, serum lactate, and base excess. Now let's talk about initial management and resuscitation in the setting of a pelvic ring fracture. Bleeding sources can be intra-abdominal, which is present in up to 40% of cases, intrathoracic, retroperitoneal, and extremity, specifically the thigh compartments. In the setting of pelvic bleeding, common sources of hemorrhage include venous injury in 80% of cases, as well as bleeding cancellous bone. In terms of venous injury, this can be secondary to shearing injury of the posterior thin-walled venous plexus, and this can lead to retroperitoneal hematoma, and know that the retroperitoneum can hold up to 4 liters of blood. Uncommon sources of hemorrhage include arterial injury in 10 to 20% of cases. 
know that the superior gluteal artery is the most common, and this can be seen in a posterior ring injury in an APC pattern. Arterial injury can also be seen in the internal pudendal artery, which can be seen in an anterior ring injury with an LC pattern. Finally, you may also have arterial injury to the obturator artery, which can also be seen in an LC pattern. Moving on to treatment of pelvic ring fractures, the first step will be resuscitation, and know that the packed red blood cells to fresh frozen plasma to platelet ratio ideally should be transfused in a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio. This ratio has been shown to improve mortality in patients requiring massive transfusion. Next, in terms of a pelvic binder slash sheet, this is indicated as the initial management of an unstable ring injury. This should be centered over the greater trochanters. As far as contraindications, there is a hypothetical risk of over-rotation of the hemipelvis and hollow viscous injury, like the bladder, in pelvic fractures with an internal rotation component, for example, in the setting of a lateral compression or LC injury. Know that there is no clinical evidence that exists of this complication occurring. As far as pitfalls, the binder can mask pelvic ring injuries, creating false negative radiographs and CT images. A stress examination under anesthesia may be indicated in patients who present to the trauma slot in a pelvic binder, hemodynamic instability, and negative pelvis radiographs slash CT scan. External fixation is indicated for pelvic ring injuries with an external rotation component, that is an APC, vertical shear, or combined mechanisms. External fixation is also indicated for unstable ring injuries with ongoing blood loss, and this should be placed before emergent laparotomy. Contraindications include ileum fracture that precludes safe application, as well as acetabular fracture. Moving on to angiography slash embolization, as far as indications, this is controversial and based on multiple variables including protocol of the institution, stability of the patient, proximity of the angiography suite, as well as availability and experience of the IR staff. CT angiography is useful for determining the presence or absence of ongoing arterial hemorrhage and has a 98 to 100% negative predictive value. As far as contraindications, these are not clearly defined. The technique involves selective embolization of identifiable bleeding sources. In patients with uncontrolled bleeding after selective embolization, bilateral temporary internal iliac embolization may be effective. Be sure to repeat angiography if the patient continues to be hypotensive after embolization. Remember that recurrent hemorrhage from a previously embolized artery is common. Complications include gluteal necrosis and impotence. Now let's talk about definitive treatment and quickly go over an overview by classification. So definitive treatment of an anterior-posterior compression or APC injuries, starting with an APC1, is non-operative and protected weight-bearing. An APC2 can be treated with anterior symphyseal plate or external fixator, plus or minus posterior fixation. Finally, an APC3 can be treated with an anterior symphyseal multi-hole plate or external fixator and posterior stabilization with SI screws or plate-slash-screws. Moving on to definitive treatment of lateral compression or LC injuries, an LC1 can be treated non-operatively with protected weight-bearing in the setting of a complete comminuted sacral component or weight-bearing as tolerated in the setting of a simple, incomplete sacral fracture. An LC2 will be treated with open reduction and internal fixation of the ileum. Finally, an LC3 can be treated with posterior stabilization with a plate or SI screws as needed. This can be approached percutaneously or open based on the injury pattern and the surgeon preference. Finally, moving on to definitive treatment of vertical shear injuries, this can be treated with posterior stabilization with a plate or SI screws as needed, and like LC3 injuries, this can be approached percutaneously or open based on the injury pattern and the surgeon preference. Now let's go over non-operative and operative management of pelvic ring injuries. 
so non-operative management can be weight-bearing as tolerated, which is indicated for mechanically stable pelvic ring injuries, which include an LC1, APC1, isolated pubic ramus fractures, and parturition-induced pelvic diastasis. So in the setting of an LC1 injury, this is defined as an anterior impaction fracture of the sacrum and oblique ramus fractures with less than 1 centimeter of posterior ring displacement. An APC1 is defined as traumatic widening of the symphysis of less than 2.5 centimeters with an intact posterior pelvic ring. In the setting of parturition-induced pelvic diastasis, you can treat these patients with bed rest and a pelvic binder in the acute setting with diastasis less than 4 centimeters. Operative options include ORIF, anterior subcutaneous pelvic fixator, or an infix, and diverting colostomy. An RIF is indicated in the setting of a symphysis diastasis of greater than 2.5 cm, SI joint displacement of greater than 1 cm, sacral fracture with displacement of greater than 1 cm, displacement or rotation of the hemipelvis, open fracture, and chronic pain as well as diastasis in parturition-induced diastasis or in the acute setting of greater than 4 to 6 cm. As far as the technique for open fractures, aggressive debridement should be done according to open fracture principles. In terms of an anterior subcutaneous pelvic fixator or an infix, this has the same indications as an anterior external fixation and symphyseal plating. Complications include heterotopic ossification, femoral nerve injury, and infection. Finally, a diverting colostomy should be considered in open pelvic fractures, especially with extensive perineal injury or rectal involvement. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with pelvic binding, as far as the technique, the pelvic binder should be centered over the greater trochanters to affect indirect reduction. Do not place over the iliac crest slash abdomen. This is ineffective and precludes assessment of the abdomen. Remember that you may augment pelvic binding with internal rotation of the lower extremities and taping at the ankles. Be sure to transition to alternative fixation as soon as possible, as prolonged pressure from the binder or sheet may cause skin necrosis. Remember that working portals may be cut in the sheet to place percutaneous fixation. Early pelvic binding and CT have been associated with underestimation of pelvic ring instability. Therefore, fluoroscopic exam under anesthesia can be used to assess stability in these circumstances. Moving on to external fixation, this theoretically works by decreasing pelvic volume. This leads to stability of the bleeding bone surfaces and the venous plexus in order to form a clot. Pins are inserted into the ilium. This can be done with supraacetabular pin insertion and single pin in the column of the supraacetabular bone from the AIIS to the PSIS. The obturator outlet view helps to identify the pin entry point. The iliac oblique view helps to direct the pin above the greater sciatic notch. The obturator oblique inlet view helps to ensure pin placement within the inner and outer table. The AIIS pins can place the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve at risk. Finally, pedicle screws with internal subcutaneous bar may be used. Know that you can perform superior iliac crest pin insertion as well as multiple half pins in the superior iliac crest. Be sure to place in the thickest portion of the ilium, specifically the gluteal pillar. Know that these may be placed with minimal fluoroscopy. Moving on to ORIF, let's talk about anterior ring stabilization, posterior ring stabilization, anterior and posterior ring stabilization, as well as stabilization in the setting of ipsilateral acetabular and pelvic ring fractures. So starting with anterior ring stabilization, this can be done with a single superior plate. You can apply through a rectus splitting fenestiel approach. This may be performed in conjunction with laparotomy or a GU procedure. Posterior ring stabilization can be done with anterior SI plating, iliosacral screws, as well as posterior SI tension plating. 
So in the setting of anterior SI plating, there may be a risk of L4 and L5 injury with placement of anterior sacral retractors. Iliosacral screws, which are placed percutaneously, are good for sacral fractures and SI dislocations. Know that the safe zone is in the S1 vertebral body. An outlet radiograph view best guides superior inferior screw placement, while an inlet radiograph view best guides anterior posterior screw placement. In sacral dysmorphism, the safe zone in S2 is larger. Keep in mind that an L5 nerve root injury is a potential complication with errors in screw placement. The entry point is best viewed on the lateral sacral view and pelvic outlet views. Remember that the risk of loss of reduction is highest in vertical sacral fracture patterns. Finally, with posterior SI tension plating, these can have prominent hardware complications. Moving on to anterior and posterior ring stabilization, this is necessary in vertically unstable injuries. Finally, in the setting of ipsilateral acetabular and pelvic ring fractures, in general, reduction and fixation of the pelvic ring should be performed first. Moving on to rehabilitation, as far as stable fractures treated non-surgically, patients may mobilize immediately with protected weight-bearing after a stable fracture pattern is confirmed. This may require post-mobilization views to confirm stability. In the setting of unstable fractures treated surgically, patient mobility and weight-bearing depend on the location of the posterior pelvic ring fracture. Mobility includes weight of limb weight-bearing ipsilateral to the posterior pelvic injury with full weight-bearing on the contralateral side. Patients with bilateral posterior pelvic ring injuries are limited to bed-to-chair transfers only. Finally, when radiographic healing has occurred, weight-bearing can be gradually advanced. Now, let's talk about some complications of pelvic ring fractures. The ones to know include urogenital injuries, neurologic injury, DVT and pulmonary embolism, chronic instability, and infection. So starting with urogenital injuries, these are present in 12 to 20% of patients with pelvic fractures, and there is a higher incidence in males at 21%. This includes posterior urethral tears and bladder rupture. Posterior urethral tears are the most common urogenital injury with pelvic ring fracture. In the setting of bladder rupture, you may see extravasation around the pubic symphysis. This is associated with mortality of 22 to 34% of cases. Diagnosis is made with retrograde urethrocystogram, and indications for retrograde urethrocystogram include blood ethymiatus, high-riding or excessively mobile prostate, and or hematuria. Treatment includes suprapubic catheter placement, however remember that a suprapubic catheter is a relative contraindication to anterior ring plating. Another potential treatment is surgical repair, and remember that rupture should be repaired at the same time or prior to definitive fixation in order to minimize infection risk. In terms of complications, long-term complications are common in up to 35% of cases. Urethral stricture is the most common complication, anterior pelvic ring infection, incontinence, and parturition sequelae, for example, cesarean section. Moving on to neurologic injury, the L5 nerve root runs over the sacral ala joint. This may be injured if an SI screw is placed too anterior. Remember that anterior subcutaneous pelvic fixators may give rise to lateral femoral cutaneous nerve injury, which is the most common, or femoral nerve injury. In terms of DVT and PE, DVT is seen in approximately 60% of patients, PE in approximately 27%, and fatal PE in 2%. Prophylaxis is essential. This can be done with mechanical compression, pharmacologic prevention with low molecular weight heparin or Lovenox, as well as vena cava filters in the setting of close head injury. Moving on to chronic instability, this is a rare complication but can be seen in non-operative cases. This presents with subjective instability and mechanical symptoms. This can be diagnosed with alternating single-leg stance pelvic radiographs, otherwise known as flamingo views. Finally, in terms of infection, risk factors include obesity, diabetes, prolonged operation time, 
prolonged ICU stay, larger amount of packed red blood cell transfusions, associated genitourinary and abdominal trauma, and open fractures. Know that preoperative angioembolization is controversial. Now, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of pelvic ring fractures. These injuries have high prevalence of poor functional outcome and chronic pain. Poor outcome is associated with SI joint incongruity of greater than 1 centimeter, high degree of initial displacement, malunion or residual displacement, leg length discrepancy of greater than 2 centimeters, nonunion, neurologic injury, and urethral injury. Remember that the mortality rate is 1 to 15% for closed fractures, however, is as much as 50% for open fractures. Hemorrhage is the leading cause of death overall. Closed head injury is the most common for lateral compression injuries. Increased mortality is associated with a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 on presentation, age greater than 60, an increased injury severity score, or ISS, or a revised trauma score, or RTS, need for transfusion of greater than 4 units, and an APC3 injury. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. The sacrospinous and sacrotuberous ligaments are disrupted in which of the following injury patterns? And the choices are 1. Ischial tuberosity avulsion fracture. 2. Type 1 anterior-posterior compression pelvic ring injury. 3. Type 2 lateral compression pelvic ring injury. 4. Type 2 anterior-posterior compression pelvic ring injury. And 5. Both column acetabular fracture. The correct answer to this question is for type 2 anterior-posterior compression pelvic ring injury. So type 2 anterior-posterior compression or APC pelvic ring injuries have disruption of the symphysis pubis as well as disruption of the anterior SI ligaments, sacrotuberous ligament, and sacrospinous ligament. The alternative pattern of disruption of the pelvic floor ligaments is sometimes seen as an avulsion injury from the bony attachments of these structures, that is the sacrum or ischium. The progression of this pattern to involve the posterior SI joint ligaments creates a type 3 pattern which is vertically and rotationally unstable. Tile published a comprehensive review of pelvic ring injuries focusing on the anatomy and pathology of these injuries. He noted that the posterior SI complex is the most important to pelvic ring stability, which is the reason why these are generally classified by the grade of posterior injury. He also reminds the reader that these classification systems are not a substitute for individualized treatment decision-making. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, ischial tuberosity avulsion fracture is incorrect, as these injuries are generally seen in sports-related trauma, with avulsion of the hamstring or hamstrings from the ischium. Answer 2, type 1 anterior-posterior compression pelvic ring injury is incorrect, as this injury pattern does not have any involvement of these two ligaments by definition. Answer 3, type 2 lateral compression pelvic ring injury is incorrect, as this injury pattern involves inward rotation of the hemipelvis, thus protecting these structures. An LC3 type injury may have a contralateral rupture of these ligaments, however. Finally, answer 5, both column acetabular fracture is incorrect, as this injury pattern typically does not involve rupture of these ligaments unless an ipsilateral pelvic ring injury is seen. Moving on to the next question. Of all the pelvic ring injury types, anteroposterior compression type 3 pelvic ring injuries have the highest rate of which of the following? And the choices are 1, head injury, 2, pulmonary injury, 3. Traumatic amputation, 4. Need for transfusion, and 5. Upper extremity fractures. The correct answer to this question is 4. Need for transfusion. 
So of the pelvic ring injuries, APC3 type injuries have the highest rate of mortality, blood loss, and need for transfusion. They also have a high rate of urogenital injury and abdominal organ injury. Lateral compression injuries, especially type 3, have the highest rate of head injury. Vertical shear and combined injuries also have significant rates of concomitant injuries. The article by Dalal et al. is a review of shock trauma's pelvic ring injuries. They found significant increases in associated injuries as the grade of pelvic ring injury increased, regardless of mechanism pattern. This information was also found to be true with their patient review. Moving on to the next question. During percutaneous iliosacral screw placement for an unstable pelvic ring injury, use of the lateral sacral fluoroscopic image is critical to help avoid iatrogenic injury to what structure? And the choices are 1, L4 nerve root, 2, L5 nerve root, 3, S1 nerve root, 4, sacroiliac joint cartilage, and 5, external iliac artery. The correct answer to this question is 2, L5 nerve root. So unstable anterior and posterior pelvic ring injuries are amenable to percutaneous treatment if reduction is able to be obtained in a closed manner and appropriate radiographic visualization is able to be achieved. In the 1996 reference by Rout et al., proper SI screw placement is described. Pelvic inlet, outlet, and lateral sacral images must be obtained to safely place a percutaneous iliosacral screw. The iliac cortical density seen adjacent to the SI joint is the anterior edge of the insertion safe zone and is only able to be seen on the lateral image. Failure to place the screw behind this radiographic line would lead to an in-out-in screw that is in the ilium and then exiting anterior to the sacral ala only to re-enter in the sacral body, which would cause direct injury to the L5 nerve root. In the 2000 reference by Rout et al., they state a thorough knowledge of pelvic osseous anatomy Injury patterns, deformities, and their fluoroscopic correlations are mandatory for percutaneous pelvic fixation to be effective. And moving on to the final question. Based on the Young and Burgess classification of pelvic ring injuries, an anterior-posterior compression type 2 injury does not result in disruption of which of the following? And the choices are 1. Pubic syphysis. 2. Anterior sacroiliac ligaments. 3. Posterior sacroiliac ligaments. 4. Sacrospinous ligament and 5, sacrotuberous ligament. The correct answer to this question is 3, posterior sacroiliac ligaments. So the posterior sacroiliac ligaments are not disrupted in an APC type 2 pelvic fracture. The Young and Burgess classification of pelvic ring injuries is largely based on the mechanism of energy of the injury. An APC type 1 involves slight widening of the pubic symphysis and or anterior sacroiliac or SI joint. An APC2 is a continuation of this force and additionally involves a disrupted anterior SI joint as well as sacrotuberous and sacrospinous ligaments. An APC3 also involves disrupted posterior SI ligaments causing complete SI joint disruption with potential translation and rotational displacement. The reference by Young et al. is a classic article that describes the Young and Burgess classification of pelvic ring injuries. They retrospectively analyzed pelvic ring radiographs and discussed four patterns of injury, anteroposterior compression, lateral compression, vertical shear, and a complex-slash-combined pattern. The reference by Burgess et al. is a validation of the Young and Burgess classification and study as they reviewed 210 consecutive patients who sustained a pelvic ring injury. They validated the classification scheme and found that overall blood replacement averaged in lateral compression 3.6 units, anteroposterior compression 14.8 units, vertical shear 9.2 units, combined mechanical in 8.5 units, and overall mortality in lateral compression was 7%, anteroposterior was 20%, 
vertical shear was 0%, and combined mechanical was 18%. That's all for this review about pelvic ring fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.